everybody, this is Tom Arnold, and you're listening to P.S. Tape Recorder. Hello there, I'm P.F., this is my tape recorder. Coming up, it's J. Elvis Weinstein. One of the lessons I, uh, I feel like I took away from Hodgson, Joe Hodgson, who created Mystery Science Theater, is just make the stuff. That's how Mystery Science Theater started. That's, that's an ethic that I've sort of taken away, is that at some point, you can't wait for someone to give you permission. You just have to make stuff, or it's just not going to get paid. Folks in Minnesota know him better as Josh Weinstein, but there already was a Josh Weinstein when he wound up in Hollywood, uh, the Josh Weinstein that wrote for The Simpsons, so he had to take on a different name to avoid confusion. But you know Jay Elvis from Mystery Science Theater 3000, amongst other things. Uh, he's done a couple of documentaries. He talks about all that in the interview, so stay tuned for that. We have a song of the week coming up from Weezer, but first, a couple of dumb bits from the archives. Tonight, it's the home remodeling program for the rest of us. It's HGTV's This House is Fine, Just the Way It Is. Hello. Oh, your colors are great. Your furniture looks both stylish and comfortable. And I love the window treatment. This house is fine just the way it is. So long. This house is fine just the way it is on HGTV. Followed by, oh my God, what did you do to my living room? And now, the troubleshooter. Finding a good mechanic can be tricky, as one local man found out. Consumer troubleshooter Tony Soprano has more. Chuck Hyperbole was having trouble with his car, so he took it into a local repair shop to have it tuned up. Well, I went to Hoodlum Brothers Repair Shop. I had testified against Ralph Hoodlum a long time ago, but I figured bygones, you know? And not give him my business. But it seems they gave Chuck the business. Well, I'm driving out in the Meadowlands, middle of the night, dumping a bot, uh, making a delivery, you know, when the engine just dies. I had to walk back eight miles. That's when I called troubleshooter Tony Soprano. I decided to pay them a visit. Mr. Hoodlum, Tony Soprano, troubleshooter. Shooter? No, not that kind of shit. Well, not usually. Listen, you fix this car belonging to Mr. Chuck Hyperbole? Yeah. He's a lawyer viewer of our newscast. Now, let's look at Mr. Hyperbole's car together, shall we? He says you tuned it up, but it sounds a little rough. Don't you think? I don't hear nothing. Take a closer look. Ow! Hey! Oh, let go of my... Ow! Look! Does that sound right? Ow! Does that sound right? Oh. Does that sound right? Stop it! I don't think so. Owie! After I stuffed him into the trunk of Mr. Please, Hyperbole's on, car, hey. he started no, to no, see no, the light, no, no, which is ironic, no, the because there's no light in there. <laughs> How's it running now, Chuck? Great, Tony. Now I got two deliveries to make out in the Meadowlands. <laughs> if you're having a consumer problem, call Tony Soprano, the troubleshooter. J. Elvis Weinstein is a stand-up comedian originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he got his start on Mystery Science Theater 3000. He's now become a documentary filmmaker. Here now is our interview with J. Elvis Weinstein. Um, so, well, I guess the first place to start is uh, you're, you're doing so many things all the time when I talk to you. What have you been doing lately? I think it's just only been about a year since we spoke, but I'm sure you've been up to just all kinds of stuff. Um, I, I have. I'm always jumping around. Um, I've been doing... Uh, I had uh, 
I'm sort of in transition right now. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what the next big project is. Um, but I, uh, I like to keep busy with lots of little projects. Um, so I'm doing the podcast with Andy Kindler called Thought Spiral. Oh, that's right. And, yeah. And, uh, I do another podcast called The Edge Show, which I sort of am a sidekick on. Um, and, uh, I'm still, uh, I just finished, um, paying off music rights from my other documentary about Michael Bay Barr. So that should come out in the next few, few to several months. Okay. And, and, um, so yeah, so I'm kind of, uh, figuring out if I want to dive into another doc or if I'm, I'm kind of thinking I might want to do some TV again. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but. And, uh, I'm also doing, and I'm also trying to do a lot more stand-ups. Yeah, that was kind of the thing you've been gravitating towards in the past few years, kind of getting back to that. Are you doing anything with Mystery Science? I know you post about it sometimes, but are you working with those guys at all, or are you just kind of cheering from the sidelines, or what's... Um, let's just say I'm not allowed to say. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> there we go. And um, the Michael DeBars documentary, you've been working on that for ages. For ages. Truly ages. It's, um, it's, uh... It's right on the cusp of uh, sad and comical. <laughs> oh, yeah, really? <laughs> well, I know you uh, mentioned that doing the music rights and stuff has been tricky. Uh, what have been kind of the other hurdles? Uh, it's just, it's, uh, it's getting all the people involved um, lined up so that things move along uh, in any kind of timely manner. You know, you'll get... Uh, Things with music rights can be like a month between phone calls just because that's how they operate, you know. So time just stretches and stretches and, um, you know, there's no, because there's no, you know, real money driving the whole thing. Right, exactly. You know, there's no studio behind it that needs it done, you know. It it was all financed by me, so it was, uh, so, you know, there's no... uh, there's no greater force driving it along. It always has to be me, and you know I have other stuff that goes that goes on. You know. Now, when we spoke last year, which wasn't for the podcast, just for the print piece, you told me a, a fascinating story about uh, Michael DeBars involving WKRP and the Scum of the Earth episode. And uh, I was mentioning how I thought it was cool that they didn't try to just do a made-up rock band, which would have looked ridiculous, but they actually came up with their own category of. Uh, of punk rock and then built it from there and you said that was DeBars had a lot to do with that yeah at least he, as he claims it was uh, it was his idea to go with the whole suit thing you know they initially had uh, written it as very much safety pins yeah you know, yeah leather jacket typical mid 70s right. punk representation <laughs> yep uh, so Michael you know who had you know who was a, who is a musician and was in that world you know was able to call bullshit and find a better joke. So. Yeah, I'm so glad he did because then it, it was so much more believable. And the fact they were older, too. You know, it's, uh, they're supposed to be these guys that just did this as a, I guess part of the, the underlying storyline is it's a, they're doing it just to get girls to come to their concerts and, and scream at them. And that's part of the joke, too. So it doesn't look ridiculous that they're also older than, you know, the average right. punk rock at the time. So, so and funny. And I can't guarantee that that's not why Michael Bebar was doing it. <laughs> exactly. Well, he was a big glam guy from way back for people that don't know. People might be more familiar with him as, as Murdoch or, I mean, people, you know, I guess different people are familiar with him for different things. You see Michael DeBars. First thing I think of is Scum of the Earth. Second thing is probably 
um, MacGyver, which I really didn't even watch that much, but I know that was a, one of his most famous roles. So, but uh, yes, he was the uh, he was the uh, the biggest of the villains, named Murdoch on uh, on MacGyver. But yeah, he had a, he's had this interesting journey through both music and you know movies and TV. He was one of, he was one of the original, he was one of the kids in the movie to serve lots with Sidney Poitier. Um, and then you know from there he sort of continued to jump back and forth between music and TV and you know he had a band called Silverhead which was financed by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Deep Purple and then you know his second band was sort of a metal band called Detective which was backed by Led Zeppelin their record label you know and then he had a band with uh, Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols and the Rhythm Section for Blondie called Checkered Pass that's right yeah and then he would replace Robert Palmer in the in the Power Station yep the Live Aid and the Tour that's right uh it's and um yeah he's had always on the cusp of um you know, breaking big. Of course, I guess Power Station was kind of that way, but Robert Palmer had he'd gotten all the record sales, and Michael yeah. DeBarzich came along and you know had to fill in on the the live shows, but uh, d- did so admirably. And uh, he, he was linked to uh, isn't he linked to royalty somehow? Isn't that part of the story too? Uh, he is a uh, he's a marquis. Yeah. So he's uh, you know it's that's you know from French royalty. So you know since there isn't since France is a democracy now, it's sort of, it's very honorary at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah. The nobility, the nobility line is still alive, and it traces all the way back to about the year 1200. Wow. That is so cool. So, I, I can't remember, how did you stumble onto this, doing this as the subject for a documentary? Because it seemed kind of odd, a guy from Mystery Science, stand-up comedy, TV comedy writer, uh, would, would choose this as the subject. Well, I thought it was a, it was a, a multi-stage process. Uh, I mean, first of all, just I was sort of fascinated by this guy as a kid because because of the Live Aid thing. Okay. I remember when he when he replaced uh, Robert Palmer, and I was you know I was in Live Aid in '85, so I was like 14 years old. Yep. And uh, like I I recognized him from Scum of the Earth from WKRP, so I was already like. That guy, is he a sitcom guy? Is he a thing? And then I remember like all the MTV DJs talking about it and acting like they knew who Detective and Silverhead were. <laughs> they clearly didn't. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, so he was like this this figure that everyone sort of had this can't put a finger on him, but you know, but he was credible as both singer and actor. You know, and yeah. so uh, years later, I actually worked with him uh, two years in a row on two different shows. Uh, once when he was guest starring and once when he became a cast member. Um, and uh, and true to his story, he had, when he was a cast member, he had replaced Johnny Rock in the cast. Ah. Uh, so he has, he has this long history of replacing people, <laughs> being a replacement rock star. Um, so, uh, you know, so what we, he and I were working together uh, on the show in Vancouver. Um, shooting up there and so I, you know, I got to spend a fair amount of time with them and I started seeing how he interacted with people and uh, this sort of way that he would both simultaneously hold court with people but also like really draw them in and draw their own stories out and that you know I could see that he was this he was clearly a narcissist but he was like this strangely generous narcissist yeah <laughs> you know, yeah yeah who was like always trying to create moments with people 
and that was clearly what was what was driving him, you know. And so I'd see him interacting with the young actors, and he'd tell them, you know, City Poitier stories, and I'd see him, you know, interacting with the crew, who were more rock and roll guys, and he'd tell them separate stories, you know. And, and so I, I just, I, I just sort of became fascinated with with this guy, just because he kept sort of fucking my expectations for what that guy would be. Yeah. Um, and uh, so he, at the time, he and I actually started uh, talking about writing a book. I was going to help him tell his story in, in, a, in a funny and sort of more detached way than a rock bio usually does. And, uh, and we got into that. I did several interviews with him. And uh, then we both just kind of got busy and it kind of went away. It, it was, I think we both sort of realized that neither of us wanted to write a book all that much. So, yeah. Um, we sort of didn't see each other for several years, and then we ended up on a uh, a Common Friends radio show together as guests. And I kind of went, I don't know why we were writing a book. I think, you know, what we should have done is made a doc. And uh, he's like, yeah, we should have. Let's do it. And so literally within about three weeks, I was shooting the doc. Wow. And I, you know, and with, 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 you know, sure. much too little prep, preparation and much too little planning and much too little budgeting. Uh, but I, you know, that's one of the, uh, one of the lessons I, uh, I feel like I took away from Hodgson, Joe Hodgson, who created Mystery Science Theater is just make the stuff, you know, yeah, that's, yeah. How, that's how, that's how Mystery Science Theater started. That's, you know, and, and that's an ethic that I've sort of taken away is that at some point you can't wait for someone to give you permission. You just have to make stuff or it's just not going to get made. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, Joel was on. He was a, a great guest. And uh, yeah, that's some, just do it. Uh, like uh, David Feldman says, the comedy writer, just just start writing and you can always go back and change it. That's another good good tip for you. And, uh, Absolutely. I think if memory serves, I'm almost positive Michael DeBars was a guest on my friend Pat Francis's podcast, Rock Solid. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. Cause I think that's what prompted me to follow Michael DeBars on Twitter and Instagram and stuff and kind of rediscover him. So on the other yeah. side of the interview, listener, I will tell you if that is in fact the case and what episode number that was. It's been like three or four years, I think, but I'm pretty sure that's true. Um, so on the he's, comment, a, he's a great he's a great interview. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, they, I think they talked for like two hours, which is uh, uh, usual for for Pat. Um, so on the comedy side, I know a couple of years ago you decided you wanted to start uh, kind of doing it uh, again. How active have you been? I know you do the show once a year with Chris in Minneapolis. Uh, kind of this unique show that's really only for Minneapolis audiences. Um, but how has it been? How's the work been going otherwise? Uh, it's been good, you know. I, I still sort of cherry pick the situations I do it in. Um, you know, and I never really quit stand up. Yeah, but I definitely. You know, it was a smaller part of the portfolio. Um, but uh, it's been good. You know, I do a lot. I go out and open for Tom Segura at some of his shows. Just been fun and great situations. Um, he was in my movie, I Need You to Kill. Um, and uh, I'm actually doing the same for uh, Chad Daniels when he comes to town. I go open for him just because, you know, it's fun. I, one of my things about friendship is that my favorite expression of friendship is making stuff with people is, you know, is doing a creative project. And so usually that's part of what drives, you know, that's why Chris and I do the show at Acme. That's why I do the podcast with Andy Kindler. And that's why, you know, oh, yeah. I, always try to, I always try to find an opportunity to, uh, 
make stuff with my friends because that's the most fun I can have, you know. Yeah. Um, and and so when I, you know when I do stand up, it's much more fun. Hang, you know, to have a friend that you're doing it with and hanging out with, you know, saying with each other and and uh, you know give it make it a more uh, substantive experience than just you know tell jokes, get checked, go home. Yeah, we're going to have both those guys here in Cincinnati coming up. Uh, Tom Segura is coming, and so is uh, Chad Daniels. So. Oh, good. Well, they're both worth going to see. That's yeah, right. yeah, exactly. And in fact, um, it's funny, the, the gal that's featuring for Chad Daniels is a lovely woman. from. She's originally from Columbus and now lives in New Orleans. I'm going to give her a plug. Laura Samuels. She is so hysterically funny. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. So, just want to plug that for the podcast. Well, that show, yes, <laughs> there you go. Um, so, yeah, it, it must be interesting because do you, uh, you know, when you're doing projects with other people, then you get to explore kind of all these other disciplines as well that these other people might have uh, expertise in. Are you, are you drawn to certain things, or you just have this kind of wide range of interests that that draw you, be it music or history or whatever it might be? I'm just drawn to anything that I haven't done before. Um, you know, where I can learn a new skill or get better at something that, that I'm good about a lot of the time, you know, it's, uh, um, I'm, you know, my, all my, all my ambitions in show business are really creative more than fame and fortune driven. And, you know, that may be, that might just be an adjustment for not getting rich and famous, <laughs> but, uh. But I just thought, you know, my, my dad died when I was young, you know, when I was in my early 20s, when I was sort of at my most ambitious. And uh, it kind of changed the way I, I framed the way I look at life. You know, my dad always, my dad made, my dad was a brilliant lawyer and, and, uh, uh, and just, you know, a remarkably good person who always sort of made choices that, you know, would point him towards happiness instead of, you know, material wealth and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and when he died at like 52, it was, I, I got this chance to sort of see his whole life, you know, and, yeah. and evaluate, you know, was it, you know, the level of tragedy involved, I guess, you know, it was, uh, I could see he, he lived this great life. And although it was cut very short, he didn't have all these regrets at the end of his life that he wasn't more rich and he wasn't more, you know, wasn't more prominent or any of that stuff. You know, he had all these beautiful relationships with people and there were 800 people at his funeral. And so it was, it was easy for me to see that, you know, that it, it allowed me to sort of recalibrate what was important at an early age. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like, you know, and, and that's kind of what I've done. I've, I've, I've left, tons of TV jobs just because, all right, I've done this now, you know, where I get, where I don't feel like I'm bringing anything new to the table, it's time for me to move on. That's it. Well, it's encouraging in one way what you just said because I'm 52 and it always freaks me out when I hear people around, you know, stories about that age passing away. Uh, but uh, but more importantly, the thing about, you know, saying not necessarily being rich and famous, I've always kind of been like, you know, I, like any good narcissist, speaking of, you know, I'll Google myself occasionally. And uh, yeah. I like stuff that I've done appears in the results, not necessarily my name. Uh, cause I'm, I'm more interested in, in people seeing that. And if they're interested, oh, yeah, it was created by this person, that's fine. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm more interested in doing uh, the, the work kind of get, getting out there and just people just enjoying that. So, interesting. Yeah, I, I, 
I'm with you there. I mean, I feel like, you know, the last 10 years, I sort of, um, well, I was actually, the, it was the, in 2007, uh, there was the Writers Guild strike. Um, and at that point, like right before the Writers Guild strike, I had, I had had like three years in a row, where I had written pilot deals for networks and they, they ended up not going to series and I was getting very frustrated. And I had just sold a screenplay that had gotten bought but didn't get made. And uh, I was just really frustrated with that, with not being able to make stuff. And I was really not feeling like a script was an actual thing at that point. It was just a plan for a thing. Um, so when, when the strike happened, that's when uh, Joe Hodgson uh, called me about doing Cinematic Titanic, um, which was a you know a reconstituted uh, cast for Mystery Science Theater doing DVDs and live shows. It was me and Trace Beaulieu and Joel Hodgson and Mary Jo Peel and Frank Conniff. Um, and so we, we actually, you know, produced our own DVD, put it out in the world, it sold well, and that sort of started financing a series of DVDs, and then we started doing live shows in theaters. It was incredibly fun. It was, and it was incredibly satisfying to be making and putting product out into the world at a rapid rate, you know, and I sort of got intoxicated by that. And that's when I started the Dave Arm movie. It was towards the end of the cinematic Titanic thing. And that before I finished the Dave Arm movie, this, the I Need You to Kill, the Asian comedy doc I made, that opportunity came along. So I made that whole film. And then I had to go back to the Dave Arm movie to finish that. In the middle of all that, I got cancer and had a kidney removed. And oh, that's right. I forgot about that. It was really interesting and, uh, and uh, multi-level emotional decades, but at the end of it, I feel I feel way better having made two movies than if I would have stayed in show business and made a bunch of money. You know? yeah. So wait, what was, what's the other movie again? Um, uh, and where can people find it? Uh, it's called I Need You to Kill. Um, it was co- it was co-executive produced by myself and Louis Lee, who owns Acting Comedy Company. Oh yeah, and. Uh, it's uh, it's it's about the the emerging Asian comic. That's right. That's scene. right. And isn't Pete Lee in that? Pete Lee, Chad Daniels, yes. and Tom Segura. There you go. Follow the three of the three of them on a tour of Singapore, Hong Kong, that's and right. Macau okay. that, that Louis Lee had put together. And we explore the scenes that are building in those cities along the way. And it's available on Amazon. It's streaming on Amazon Prime. Okay, cool. I've got that. I can check that out. I'm very excited. Please do. Cool, Please man. Do. All right. Write something nice about it in the article. What's that? Write something nice about it in the article. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I'll uh, we'll definitely direct uh, people that way, and um, and we can expect the long-awaited Michael DeBars documentary. Do you think by the end of the year, maybe first quarter next year? I would say first quarter of nineteen at this point. All right, fingers crossed, man. All right. And, well, uh, yeah, and so Chris and then Chris and I are doing acting this week. That's right. Uh, uh, same setup, of course. You uh, he you do some stuff. He he comments maybe. You do some stuff. He comments maybe, and that's uh, kind of that back and forth thing still. Pretty much, yeah. It's he and I on stage. There's no opener or feature act. It's just he and I on stage the whole show. It's, it's, it's tag team, for lack of a better word, comedy. Very good. All right. Yeah, I got to call him. Uh, 
Next, I probably should email him here right after this and see, uh, could get an update on the uh, the First Amendment or the Bill of Rights projects. I always call it the First Amendment projects, the Bill of Rights project. Uh, it is the Bill of Rights, yeah. There you go. So that'll be the first thing I need to get corrected. But, um, well, great, man. It was good talking to you. I'll get uh, Chris on the horn here next then, hopefully. And uh, good luck up in Acme. And like I said, hope maybe one of these days we'll see you down here in Cincinnati, either featuring or outlining for someone. We'd love, we'd love to do that. Awesome. Well, great. Well, uh, thanks for taking the time, man. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thanks again to J. Elvis Weinstein for being on the show. You can get J. Elvis while I'm not exactly sure where. Uh, he hasn't really updated his website in a while. I guess he's been busy with other stuff, as you heard in the interview. But you can follow him on Twitter at J. Elvis Weinstein, all one word. And uh, you can probably get updates there on when he's going to be doing stand-up again or anything else you want to see that he's involved in. All right, so the usual plugs will get out of the way real quick before we get to the song of the week, and that would be Nearly Liza YouTube channel, Chuck Check Hayes blog. Do check those things out. And uh, with that, we move on to the song of the week. It's from Weezer. It is their uh, latest single. I know they got a lot of traction with uh, Africa, which people were kind of like, people loved it or they hated it. And uh, a lot of people kind of hated it because it just just kind of like Toto, which, you know, is fine, but I think people were looking for it to be more Weezer-y. But anyway, uh, this tune, uh, Can't Knock the Hustle, this is another one that's a little polarizing. People seem to love it or hate it. I happen to love it. It's really grown on me, and uh, it's got a great hook. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So here now with the song of the week is Weezer, Can't Knock the Hustle, PF's tape recorder, so long, and thanks for listening. I started makeup, I-